bets are amazing, 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 amazing. There's a fly ball hit out to left, waiting is Jones, the Mets of the world champion. Here's the one, two, three. Check him out. Steve has 19 strikeouts. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, November the 10th, 2019. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Of course, if you want to listen the best way, it's on Apple Podcasts. Hope everybody's doing well. It's certainly, if you want to talk about kicking off the hot stove, the weather and, and how cold it is, and, and really, you're so even though you're like, what, week and a half, two weeks away from the World Series, you might as well be in the middle of the winter with the way that things are feeling out there. So what a great way to kick off the hot stove here and talk about the upcoming GM meetings and really break down what are the needs of the Mets and what they realistically can do. And joining me in just a little bit, Mets beat reporter for the record, one of our go-tos, Justin Toscano. I love talking to him. He's going to join us, and we'll get his take on uh, what what direction the Mets will go. Now, as we go throughout the winter, if you're expecting out of this podcast me to whine and complain and play fantasy baseball and you know sign this guy, sign that guy, and and not uh, be realistic, well, you know that's not this podcast, and you know that if you've been listening for a while now, if you're new to it. We've had quite a few new listeners uh, checking in, uh, some email shout-outs I want to get to a little bit later. Uh, So you know the score here. We're going to talk in realism. We're not going to whine and complain about the ownership group. You know, we know the deal. Uh, I think the Mets, uh, if you start looking at the luxury tax, if you start looking at the payroll, they're inching it up uh, to where... You know, I think that you'd want them to be. I think in general, and this will probably come to a head with the uh, collective bargaining agreement, this uh, tax or the level that the tax is at will probably be a sticking point. All teams, the Red Sox included, the team that always uh, was a big spender, are starting to be more mindful of the tax. And I know what everyone's going to say. The first penalty is, you know, so low. Uh, You have to look at your team over two, three, four-year span. Now, the one thing that I think would be aggravating if you look at it from a Mets point of view, and you saw some quotes already from Brody Van Wagenen that talked about this, how, well, if a player makes sense, we'll discuss it. 
And historically, and this was first reported by our friend Howard Megdal when he did that whole Wilpon Follies, Wilpon's Folly, that whole series, you know, breaking down the Mets' finances. But the Mets, instead of setting a budget, piecemeal a lot of these big moves and say, well, can we do this? Can we do that? Makes it a lot harder, of course, to go through the offseason. But that's their way of going about things. And uh, does it mean they can't sign somebody? But obviously, it makes it a little bit harder. So uh, really, we're going to deal with the areas that right now, the three areas that the Mets have already put out there as potentially areas that, that they have to, and they're obvious, areas that they have to improve. And it's hard for me to go and predict trades because we know guys that the Mets have been interested in. We don't know who they're willing to give up. We don't know what the other team is really looking for. It's very hard. So when you see what a Joel Sherman does in the post, I mean, trying to trade Jeff McNeil for Kevin Kiermeyer, I just, you know, writers should stop being GMs because I got to tell you, writers are bad GMs. Pete Alonzo for Salvador Perez, uh, Noah Syndergaard for Brandon Drury. We've seen some of those over the years, but be that as it may, that's not what this is about. We know that it's about the pitching and about how this starting rotation is going to look in 2020. It's about the bullpen, most importantly about the bullpen, and it's about improving the defense because I really think their offense right now is in a pretty good place. So when you start with the pitching and you start with where they're at now, you first can say, okay, they're going to be looking for a pitching coach. They're interviewing Jeremy Hefner this week. And, and by the way, I'm not going to get crazy on coaches because all I know is what the Mets are going to do. Uh, and if you look at what the Yankees did with Matt Blake, they're going to look for a pitching coach that is more modern, where they are up to date on heavy use of video analytics, practices that will help improve the training methods of the players and how they can use those results and, and ideas to incorporate better utilization of the player's current repertoire. So that's what you're looking at. It's not just about knowing stats. That's what they're going to try to hire. And that should help, in my opinion, improve what they already have. But the conversation when it comes to pitching begins and ends with Zach Wheeler starting it off and where do they go with the starting rotation from there. Because what happens there impacts the bullpen. When you talk about Seth Lugo and Robert Gazelman, more importantly, Lugo. So I look at Wheeler, and he's a conundrum to me because when you break down his numbers, especially over the last couple of years, and I, you guys know I was never a Wheeler fan, threw too many pitches, always behind the count, bad mechanics. I, I just felt like he was a pain to watch. Got hurt, was out two years, came back, and, and, and since then, uh, if you base it on analytics, if you go to fan graphs over the two-year period, especially since the All-Star break in 2018, he's a top-10 pitcher in baseball. And at times, in, in small spurts, has been every bit Jacob deGrom. So, you know, that's a big you know big thing that, that stands out where I don't, I don't think everybody realizes that. Wheeler, at the very least, is a top-15 starting pitcher. You know, when you look at things like... Uh, wins above replacement. You look at uh, FIP, which just takes into account things that the the player controls, the walks, the strikeouts, the home runs. Uh, you know, you got a top ten pitcher there. You got a guy that's only Jacob Degrom is better than. You know, Syndergaard is, is falling a little bit back. 
He's a guy that could give you 180 to 200 innings. Uh, he's the most likely guy on that staff, especially now that uh, Syndergaard hasn't been Syndergaard. Uh, he's the most likely guy that's going to give you a DeGrom-like outing. He's still young. He's only 30. And I think that there's a certain level of marketing that comes with uh, running a team and building a team is that fans get attached to certain players. And you could take player A, Zach Wheeler, let's say, and then player B, which is an equivalent to Zach Wheeler. And you could make the argument that player B is the same as A. And that, that's an important thing to do when you're running a team and building a team because you want to put as little emotion as possible out of it. But when it comes in, it's all said and done. Uh, if the fans have grown up and liked and Wheeler likes playing here, I think that there's something to that. And we'll talk about that when we talk about replacements because I think familiarity with the area does play into that. Now come the cons. And I think that the cons, especially because Wheeler has been so good over the last couple of years and because a lot of the, especially the younger fans, are so caught up in analytics and so caught up in, in a lot of uh, you know advanced stats. They don't look at the bigger picture. They don't look at this from a macro point of view. Wheeler can be inconsistent. I'll do a quick pause after I put this, but do you know the three teams that Wheeler had the worst success against in 2019? I'll give you like five seconds to think about it. The Braves, the Yankees, and the Nationals, specifically the Braves, who we started against four times. And if you think bad outings against the Nats, even the outing late in the year after that historic meltdown, uh, you know, he was he labored through that game, that uh, that day game after the, the, the blown six-run lead. The Braves, you know, tough extra inning loss in August in the midst of that six-game losing streak. He uh, he got clobbered. He got clobbered that Saturday night, a game that they had to come back and then the bullpen blow. Uh, games in Atlanta where he struggled and was non-competitive. First game of the day-night doubleheader. Now, I know that he pitched well against the Yankees the second time out. Not that I, I like to subscribe to these kind of things, but the Yankees were coming back from London, and uh, there was a lot of advantages pitching at City Field, things like that. So when I see that, I start to say, and I've said throughout the season, if you're going to give a guy a big deal, a four- or five-year deal, you really have to know that this guy's going to give you a level of consistency. Now, in today's game, Wheeler and what you want to get, and there's so much garbage in rotations out there and so much bad pitching, maybe... Big picture, I'm looking at it myopically, and 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 that's I'm looking at it too much of a small sample size. But when I see four starts against the Braves, a team that won the division, a good offensive team, a pesky offensive team, uh, and certain times where they really could have used a good outing, especially that Saturday night game, it's a problem. It's a concern, you know, especially on the road. You know, day-night doubleheader uh, with the Yankees. You want to get off to a good start. Yeah, the defense, and I know what people are going to say. Well, the Mets defense is bad. Wheeler gets hit by the defense. I've seen uh, Wheeler's brother Adam on Twitter, who I follow, was the gopher ball on the defense, and those are all true. But at the end of the day, what what Wheeler's success and what people are going to want to pay him on are things that largely defense doesn't play into. Walks, strikeouts, yes, the juice ball plays into the home run. Maybe that'll be a a different situation next year. And he, he rates well in those things. And I think sometimes when it comes to these big outings, he's... Um, he's fallen short. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't want to sign Wheeler. And I think ideally right now, the issue you have is bullpens are very difficult to improve. They're very tricky to improve. 
And I don't know, even in the best case scenario, the best blueprint with the most money, that you could count on any of these guys to do what you think they're going to do. You see what happened with Familia. You see what happened with Edwin Diaz. Look at the Dodgers with Joe Kelly. A lot of times emotion gets into play and guys do well in postseason or they have really good second halves or good years and people pay them big money. you got to be careful doing that. Defensively, because I think that there's such a downgrade in the defense at times when you go and you go into center field and put a Juan Lagares defensive type or uh, uh, Thomas Nito behind the plate, the, def- uh, the defense pulls the offense down so much that you start to wonder, is it worth it? And I know they're looking at some defensive options, and I think, and we'll talk about that later, I think it'll be more about defensive options off the bench to complement the offense, almost like two teams, uh, rather than trying to rob Peter to pay Paul and and weaken the defense. We'll have a more balanced offense-defense breakdown. See, I'm not sure if I'm in in favor of that. So it all all goes into play here with that. Um, So because those are going to be so hard to fix... You almost have to invest in the strength. Right now, the Mets, with Stroman, since the uh, trade deadline, have four pitchers. And again, you're basing it on the analytics, like wins above replacement. These are the the secondary stats that a lot of the announcers, a lot of the general fans are not paying attention to. Um, Those stats are putting the four Mets starters with Wheeler in there. DeGrom, Syndergaard, Wheeler... Stroman as top 25. Mets have four of the top 25 starters in all of baseball. That includes the American League. Nobody else can say that. Uh, Yankees can't say that. The Astros can't say that. The Astros are starting relievers in critical games in the postseason, as were the Yankees. So that advantage to me puts the Mets above and beyond anybody, including the Nationals. The Nationals have three really good starters, and Anibal Sanchez is kind of fringy out there, but Mets are better. And that's going to be your competition. You're way better than what the Braves had as their young pitchers develop. Uh, The Phillies are not even close, and that's your competition. So if you're going to weaken that competition and then make the next downgrade, which is fifth starter type, I don't care if it's Ivan Nova, Wade Miley, uh, you want to go a little bit higher end and maybe spend some money bringing a Rich Hill or a Dallas Keuchel on a short-term deal. Julio Tejeron, who who's a free agent and may have, may have some upside. You want to go like Michael Walker or Drew Smiley, guys who've had success, and, and maybe you get something out. I don't care who those guys. I look at those as the fifth starter types. There's going to be a downgrade from Wheeler. Scrap heap, way risky. You know, Felix Hernandez, Gio Gonzalez, Derek Holland, Alex Wood. These are all free agents I'm throwing out there. Um... The only thing you can do if you say Wheeler, and if it gets crazy, look, if Wheeler gets Patrick Corbin-type money, a seven-year deal, thanks, but no thanks. Here's one thing to think about, though. Before I get to, there are a couple of options that if you don't want to go long-term with Wheeler and you're not bought into, because Wheeler's an injury risk. He's certainly an injury risk, and he's... um. He's a guy that has uh, late delivery mechanics, you know, the inverted elbow. He's been better than when he was younger, but those are guys that are going to have injury risk as they get into their early to mid-30s. And if you give him a five-year deal, you give him a deal until his mid-30s. There are there are some options out there, you know, there there's, uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, there are rebound guys out there that you could potentially look at. I think Rick Porcello who's a local guy, uh, not that far removed from a Cy Young, 
is uh, is one option. Um, you could go Cole Hamels or Tanner Roark on a one-year deal. I think Porcello and Hamels could give you potentially top-of-the-rotation performances, maybe not as consistent as Wheeler can at this point, and this stuff and their their advanced numbers are not going to be the same way. Uh, Roark is going to be a 5-6 to six inning, quietly good, quietly efficient, I think, uh, pitcher, pitched in the National League East with the Nationals, so he knows what he's getting into. So you got that. Then you have the internal options. The internal options are going to impact the bullpen, and that's where we get to the bullpen a little bit because that's going to get tricky, especially after the uh, uh, O'Day signing by the Braves, Darren O'Day signing. Gazelman and Lugo are the two names that come up. Now, to me, Gazelman, when he came up in 16, if you look at him, was the better of the two pitchers, and he was huge for the Mets. They had no DeGrom. They basically had Syndergaard. Uh, Matt Harvey went down. They had uh, Mats went down. So you relied on uh, uh, Syndergaard, Cologne, Gazelman, Lugo. So that was a sharp downgrade the year after the pennant-winning team that had all these young, high-upside, number-one-type guys. Gazelman has dropped. He dropped the year after. Uh, he, he, to me, is not a lockdown bullpen guy. He's a bullpen guy that could give you some innings, two to three innings. He's a long man uh, that can potentially keep a game close or, or bridge you with multiple innings uh, in an extra inning game or in a, in a blowout one way or the other, bridge some innings. He's not a guy that I look at as a high-leverage reliever in one-inning spurt. He's, even though he tr- they've tried him there, to me, he doesn't come across that way. Uh, he's had some moments, but he doesn't. So uh, that's where, if he's not a starter, I think his future lies. Now, Lugo's the interesting one. And to me, you got to kind of figure Lugo out here. Because if you don't put him in the rotation, and he's, and he's working out, you know, getting to the point where uh, they've told him, prepare to come in and compete for a spot in the rotation. Which means they there's probably a good chance they know that Wheeler is going to get a little expensive and a little bit too risky for their appetite. Gazelman and Lugo is the guy that if you look at him in 2017, his advanced stats are not that bad. They're not that far off from Wheeler. He's a guy that had the UCL partial tear. So when he came back in 17, uh, he was battling that. He pitched very well in the WBC on a big stage in a big moment. And I know what you're going to say, some of you, who cares? But to me, uh, that means a lot in terms of the player trying to prove themselves, not only in front of their peers, but for their country. So there might be a little bit more juice for the players than what you guys in the audience, the fans, think. I believe if there's anybody that can on a very inexpensive way, and a guy that knows uh, what's what he's getting into here and, and, and potentially could be the answer. I think Lugo's your best option. I think he's a better option than Porcello to have a good year. I think he's a better option than Roark to have a good year. Uh, Cole Hamels is an interesting because he's a veteran, uh, but he's going to cost you more. And yeah, sure, it's a one-year deal. Uh, I think he's a better option than guys like Dallas Keuchel and maybe even Rich Hill. And Drew Smiley and Michael Walker. And if you're asking and you say, well, Mike, you know, I'm so disappointed in you. What about uh, uh, Garrett Cole and Steven Strasburg and Ryu and, uh, and Madison Bumgarner? Those are not realistic. You already have one risky pitching contract of long-term in DeGrom. Strasburg, I wouldn't touch. What he was getting from the Nationals with the four-year deal, that's what I would give him. And, and he already had that. He turned it down by opting out. So forget about it. Cole... You know what? You already got DeGrom. You can't put two of those kind of guys on the payroll. They're going to destroy your payroll. 
let's put it this way. If you have a $200 million payroll, which is a good payroll, there are going to be $60 million combine those two guys of 200. You know, it's 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 more than a quarter of your payroll. You, you can't have two guys make up that much in a position in a time where their health is a risk. And if, God forbid, one or both go down, you're crippled. You're done. Now, it's definitely a, a riverboat gambler situation. I just don't see it. I just don't see it. Now, also remember something, too. Mets have to be really creative, uh, not only with, with the financials, but they already got 37 of 40 roster spots filled out on this roster. And, you know, they may have to look at a Mazur, or Gosick, or a Gagno, uh, and, and, and get them off the roster as they try to sign free agents. You know, they want to sign some bullpen arms. They want to sign a starter. They may have to do some a combination of obviously signing a you know somewhat of a guarantee, but also what they did last winter, which is take veterans who are not going to be able to get roster spots, jobs elsewhere, or who may be able to but don't want to play for a bad team, and say, look, come to camp, compete. You know, maybe you got to go down to AAA for sixty days. We'll get you out of here, like they did with Echeverria, like they did with Gomez, guys like that, and say we'll get you out of here if it doesn't work and you want to go somewhere else and get a job. So there's also that component here. So when you got a guy on the roster like Seth Lugo. A guy that has potential, a guy who has multiple pitches, a guy who would think wants to do it, wants to prove himself, has his last shot here, really. Because if he fails, he's going to go back to the bullpen. And then you're going to say, well, what about Edwin Diaz? What about the closer? What about the bullpen? Those are all legitimate concerns. But to me, you're going to have to go out and you have to realize that if your guy can't go every day, if Lugo can't go, three out of five days or four out of six days coming out of that bullpen. And last year he couldn't. Then you really got to figure out what is his best role because then you almost need him on a schedule. People say, well, he's got the partial tear UCL. Is the rotation really good for him with the innings? Well, what do you think is better for him? Getting hot and not pitching consistently or scheduling and planning every five days? And the answer is obvious. No one looks at that. Well, the bullpen is very taxing and demanding for guys, especially if there's health issues. That's why I don't know if Wheeler could do it or Mats could do it. Because if you do sign Wheeler, I still would have Logo compete for the rotation spot because I wouldn't just hand it to Mats. Because notice I said four out of five are elite in the top 25. Now, Mats isn't bad, and he's certainly a much better number five than Vargas. But... Um, he, he He's maybe not as good as uh, Seth Lugo. After the 31st deadline, they did acquire Stroman in anticipation of losing or trading Zach Wheeler. We know that. And worst case scenario, I think the rotation is no worse than what it was going into 2019 with Vargas. But I'm not sure that the defense and the bullpen can be improved at a high enough level where ticking that rotation away. Remember, a lot of their good play happened after some of it happened before Stroman, after Stroman, because they were getting really good quality pitching that kept them in the game every night. It was the bullpen that did them in. So I'd prefer to sign Wheeler. And if it was a four-year deal for $20 million, and, and I missed this point earlier. I'm going to throw this out really quick at you because I just remembered I, I got off on a tangent there. Here's why Wheeler may accept the one-year deal. I don't think he will. I think it's highly unlikely. But here's something to think about. You look at the free agent class next year, it's not quite as strong with pitchers. There's no Cole, there's no Strasburg, there's no Ryu, there's no Madison Bumgarner. He may float to the top. Now, Trevor Barrow will be a free agent if he doesn't sign an extension before. 
he may float to the top of that class, has a really good year, and then not only puts the advanced analytics to the behind the engine numbers together, puts a 17-win season, Mets make the playoffs, he pitches well in the postseason. Now, in his world, now you get yourself a real deal. It's a risk. It's certainly a risk because you could go out there, pitch horribly this year, get hurt, and then you, you throw it all away. But if you believe in yourself and you think you're healthy, you think you could do it, you potentially could get a longer deal and make more money, especially if the back if when you're in your 30s, when you're not going to be able to get that second deal uh, as, as easily. Probably he's not going to take that risk because of his age, where he's headed to as he, as he hit 30, knowing that this is probably his only big contract that he's going to get, or at least one that you could realistically expect. So, you know, I, I don't see that happening. But don't discount it, because it might be a conversation that, and it certainly would work in the Mets' favor, it's a $17.5 million balloon payment to a guy for one year. Happened with Neil Walker. Um, so there's that. But in the end, I really think the only guy that will give you a shot at being in that top 25, like what they have now if Wheeler leaves, is Seth Lugo. Sure, can Pacello do it? Can Cole Hamels do it? These are veterans. Yes. I don't know if they can f- push themselves into that kind of uh, performance because they're on the back half of their career. Lugo still has a lot, to, and he wants to make money. He has a lot to prove. If you don't think you're going to get the best out of Lugo now, this is the best you're going to get, the best focus. And, and you may be, oh, this is the best health you'll get. Remember, he has a partial tear in his arm. So you may only have so many uh, innings left out of that arm. It's like a car. There's only so many times you could turn the key in the ignition. One day, and believe me, I had one of those type of cars. One day, it it says no moss, and you got a lot out of it. You squeezed every bit of juice out of the orange, and it's gone. So, anyway. All right, let's take a quick break. When we return, Justin Toscano of The Record will join me. We'll get into this and other options. We still got to get into the defense. We still got to get into the, the catching situation. But uh, a lot to do. Really, the, the offseason starts and ends with what are they going to do with Zach Wheeler and what's going to happen with the starting rotation because it's going to trickle down to other areas in the team. We'll be back. Justin Toscano, the record, right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon. And enjoy the rest of the show. We're back and uh, joining us, uh, Mets beat reporter for the record at North Jersey, Justin Toscano. You can check him out on Twitter at Justin C. Toscano. New to the beat, but uh, doing some great work out there. And uh, as we kick off, what I think because of the weather is like the first official hot stove, even though... World Series been been off for about a week and a half. Justin and I will look at the GM meetings and what to expect. And Justin, welcome to the program. So, um, you know, the offseason's here. Let's start off with uh, the fun stuff. You think the Mets are going to pull in some hardware this week? Rookie of the Year, Pete Alonso, Cy Young, Jacob DeGrom. What do you think? I do. I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking both. And uh, right before you called, I was thinking about – I think the most impressive thing about Pete Alonso's season 
is that for weeks we've expected him to win this, and now the only question is whether it's going to be unanimous. <laughs> and and so I I don't see I I personally couldn't make a good case for any you know for Tatis or Soroka and like now I know if Tatis had played a whole season it'd be different because his numbers were great through you know the middle of August but um and Soroka there might not be anything more difficult than being a rookie pitcher and he he played well but I you know Pete's gonna win it I think everybody's accepted that on. I mean, on the Cy Young side, though, um, yeah, really crazy how DeGrom put together that run of, you know, 20-plus scoreless innings to finish the season, almost caught Ryu and ERA. But I think when you just look at the entire resume, what's going to tip the scales is the strikeouts and, and a lot of other things that he did better than Ryu. So, I, you know, I think they're going to – didn't make the playoffs, but still nice to, you know, pull in some hardware. Not for sure. And the interesting thing is going into next year, I mean, DeGrom now has a resume and, and obviously, and I said this as going into this year, you saw a little bit of it similar to Dwight Gooden in 85, 86, 87, 88. We know he had off the field issues, but from a performance wise, it never was the same. And for a while there with DeGrom, it never was the same, but then it became the same later in the year. With Alonzo, what will be interesting is he didn't really slump. Had a couple of slumps, but you really can't say, well, this went bad in his rookie year. And next year you wonder, does he start off two for 25? I mean, both these guys have expectations going forward, and a lot of those expectations become media narratives and, and give us things to talk about, but... Uh, for specifically Alonzo, it's going to add a little bit of pressure because even in spring training, people are always going to be comparing what may be a year that he'll never match his entire career. He'll be good, but he may never match this year. Yeah, you um, – I mean, it's certainly hard to hit 53 home runs in a season and to do those great things and reach those heights as a rookie. It really does set up the expectations narrative, so while he may reach them – you know, there are always going to be some people that, that say, you know, he didn't or it was never as good as his rookie year because the expectations are so high. I think um, it's going to be interesting to see what he does because he's always been good to adjusting at how people pitch him. And we've all heard about the notebook he keeps, writing down how guys pitch him, you know, whatnot. But you're right. Like the slumps he did have for a rookie were really, I mean, very, very minor. And, um, you know, the two major ones in the second half of the season were very minor. But, you know, what are you going to do after a year of guys, you know, knowing how to pitch you? I mean, you talk about the sophomore slump. Um, and it just I think it just goes to highlight that these guys, Alonzo and DeGrom, had great individual seasons. But when that happens, it really um, highlights the need, in my opinion, for, for other guys to kind of follow suit the next year. Because, look, I mean, like these guys having great seasons is not going to, get them to the postseason next year. It's, it's gotta be, you know, a total effort from others. And, um, but I think, you know, it, the expectations, that narrative is, is one of the worst in, in sports media, because look, I mean, it's, it's hard to, to keep that up. And, and for DeGrom, you're talking about a guy who goes out there every fifth day and you expect him to go at least seven innings, maybe give up only two runs. And that, that's difficult. I mean, with the way the baseball was this last season and um, just with how good hitters are, I mean, it's it's difficult, but it's hard. Yeah, you don't know what to expect, but DeGrom certainly has 
that resume where for him he's going to be looked at by by these last two seasons, which historically are some of the best ever for a pitcher, and he put together two of them. Uh, just to, to scan all of the record, Mets beat reporter joining us, heading into the GM meetings. Uh, before we get to, you know, I'm kind of laying out the offseason here. Uh, initial reaction to Carlos Beltran. Yesterday's news, it's almost it's a week and we're already moving on. Uh, I know they're trying to round out the coaching staff and whatnot, but I, I'm assuming you're at the press conference. Uh, any initial reaction? You can't really lose the press conference, but uh, you don't always uh, win it. What, what, do you, what do you think about Carlos Beltran initially? Yeah, that's really good. I, I never thought about that. You can't – yeah, I, I think about it that way, but you put it into words perfectly. You can't lose the press conference. Come on, like it's just this big show. But, yeah, you don't always win it. I think they did win it, though. Um, you always hear just the buzzwords every press conference. But my thought on the Beltran hiring was once – a Joe Girardi is out of your search and you have a bunch of guys who are going to be first time managers. I think um, you have to go with a guy like, like Beltran. I see why they did. I mean, you're looking for instant credibility with the clubhouse and, and some of the analytics ideas that he's brought are, you know, supposedly pretty, pretty keen. And so I think, um, yeah, I think it's a good match and you, I think the fan base, if they saw somebody with Beltran's, you know, maybe lack of coaching experience after playing baseball to this point, or, or that he hadn't had much because he retired in 2017, but his name wasn't Carlos Beltran, I think people would be enraged. But I think, I think the instant credibility is going to be something big because even a manager who's played in the big leagues for a few years but never isn't a future Hall of Famer, you know, isn't going to have that respect. And I think um, dealing with the intricacies of a clubhouse is going to be something that's big, but the name of the game in today's sport is the analytics. How do you blend that? You can't be at one end of the extreme where you're all analytics and you can't be at the other where you're all old school, all, you know, human element. You've got to blend them. So how is he, you know, he says he's pretty good at that and has gained experience at, selling those analytics to the players and how they'll benefit their careers. Now, if he does that, I think this is a match made in heaven. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you're going to see that with the pitching coach. If they hire, let's say a Jeremy Hefner type, I think you're going to see that uh, more, more and more. And uh, probably with the other coaches, Uh, when you move to the roster and ultimately that's, what's going to decide whether Carlos Beltran is successful or not. I yep. think everything starts with Zach Wheeler. Now, you know, some feel that it's a fait accompli. He's gone. I'm not sure about that, but it's not. And I, and the whole open that I did was based on, this is not as black and white. I think as people think now I get it. You look at the analytics. He's a top 15 pitcher. You go back two years. He's probably top 10, especially since July of, of 18. Uh, he'll give you 180 to 200 innings. He's as likely as anybody now that Syndergaard has taken, has taken a little step back to be DeGrom when DeGrom isn't pitching. But he was inconsistent at times. And the three worst teams, as I was breaking down his game log, the three worst teams he performed against, Atlanta, Washington, and the Yankees, those are elite teams, especially Atlanta, the, the division winner. Still at injury risk, going into his 30s with a long-term deal. Um, I do want them to sign him. There's a threshold, but four years, $80 million-ish is not as obvious to uh to me as it may be being made out by the fans maybe the media 
Uh, there's a lot of money here. He's going to be in his 30s. And when you use the old Brian Cashman thing, when you peel that onion, uh, there's some things to be worried about there. Uh, it does impact the bullpen because now you may have to move Lugo into rotation. And, and, it, and signing him may impact their ability to spend elsewhere. So uh, that, I think it starts with Wheeler and where this goes. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think if you're looking at this offseason from a linear, you know, point A to point B to point C perspective, then, yeah, it does start with Zach Wheeler. Um, you know, I think it's going to be very hard to keep him, and that's not because the Mets won't – more so like that the Mets won't dedicate the money to doing so. I think it's because he's going to get paid a lot elsewhere. Um, yeah, there might be, you know, some concerns here or there, but I think with just – you know, I think when – Teams see inconsistency maybe as a little bit of an issue. I think that's, like, fixable if you're in the right organization maybe. Um, But, yeah, his numbers and what he's done and his talent and kind of, like, who he's become. I think he's going to get paid, especially because you're going to see a team, you know, maybe one that's middle of the road and trying to contend get desperate because they need a, a, you know, who they value as a quality, you know, top starter or one of the top on the market. And I think um, for that, by that perspective, by that lens, I think it's going to be hard for the the Mets to keep him. Now, I mean, I you know it could be wrong. Like, yeah, if you like you said, maybe maybe there aren't many biters in terms of getting something like a you know mega deal compared to you know comparatively for Wheeler, not for like somebody like Garrett Cole, but getting a bigger deal. Then maybe yeah, the Mets do you know, sign him for, you know, years and, and something like in the 80s. But even then, I mean, you're leaving, I guess you have a lot on the books. But the thing you can say is that, and I'm sure you'll talk about this, is that, you know, the luxury tax for this year, the Mets have a lot coming off the books for 2021. So that's, you know, the one thing you can say is that if you dip in this year, you know, it doesn't have to be two consecutive years and you don't have to pay the higher tax. But, um, yeah, I would say the only way it gets done is if it's something a little less oblivious of a cap, you know, per year. So I think, you know, the one, the deal you mentioned would work. But my concern is just that I think he's going to get paid, you know, out the wazoo somewhere else. And I've, you know, thought that for a minute just because teams, and especially after this postseason, have really, really seen that you need starting pitching or you're not going anywhere. But nope, that's, for the that's Mets, fair. yeah, yeah, and I think that's what will drive up his price, especially given some of the other guys who are on the market and what Zach Wheeler has done and the name he has made for himself. But yeah. if you're the Mets, it gets tricky because Brody Van Wagner said that, you know, they'd like to bring him back if he, you know, rejects, and so now you're going to be at that stage. Are you going to bring him back? Is Was that just lip service? I mean, I don't know. It gets tricky because – you have to replace a guy, a starter like that is set. You don't know what Seth Lugo is going to give you. You don't know what Robert Gasolman is potentially going to give you. Is Marcus Stroman going to reach his potential? Now, um, I mean, one argument you could make is technically Stroman replaced was going to replace Wheeler. And now you're just filling that Jason Vargas spot, which, which is fine to make, but I mean, you're still losing a Zach Wheeler. So I think um, you got to be careful because look like those, you know, those teams with inconsistent fourth or, you know, like back-end guys, it's that can be a real killer, especially if you're, you know, trying to go on a hot streak, get 
you know, the Mets did something pretty special in the second half last year, but that started with the fact that they were putting a quality starter on the mound every night. you, you got to be careful how you replace a guy like Zach Wheeler because in some ways he can be irreplaceable. Yep, and, and that's where it gets crazy because um, you look at the numbers and sometimes you look at them like, well, you could find that. You could find that with a Tanner Roark or a one-year deal with a Porcello or Hamels. Or, you know, I think Seth Lugo sure. could very easily slide in there. But remember – if you look at it again, if you look at things like FIP, if you look at things like war, if you look at uh, the things that are valued now, the Mets have four with Wheeler, four of the top 25 starters in baseball. Mats is outside of that. Yes, you're right. If, if you get rid of Wheeler and you slide Stroman in, now they're back to where they were when Vargas was there. And Vargas was actually much better than people give him credit for. Um, but, better. you know, that's replaceable. You could get more out of that. Mats is more out of that uh, in, in a lot of ways. So, if you're going to take that downgrade, you got to significantly upgrade, I think, in the bullpen. And here's my concern. Darren O'Day just got a deal from the Braves for about $5 million. Uh, that's a guy who pitched, what, 10 innings this year? These bullpen guys are yeah. going to get expensive. They're tricky. You know, I'm even looking at Familia now. You know, his body and his pitching look like he was 39. He's only 29. Uh, we know Edwin <laughs> Diaz. Uh, it, you're going to be relying on, I think, Blake Taylors of the world. Some of these Arizona Fall League guys, you're going to have to sign the Brad Brocks if you could get them on, you know, deals for uh, veteran uh, minimums. I, I think it's going to be because people say, well, don't pay Wheeler, use the money for the bullpen. Uh, it's not as easy as that. You know, I think you pay the pitcher, you figure out the bullpen. I know people are going to say you just did that, but um, you almost don't have a choice because if you, you look at even the Dodgers with a Joe Kelly, you don't know what you're going to get. And, and I think that's where taking the downgrade in the rotation, I don't think you can make it up in the bullpen. And I haven't even gotten to the defensive part, which is even more complicated. We'll get to that in a minute. See, that's where this becomes even more complicated. You almost have to pay the guy. Uh, luxury tax, yes. But if you want to, for real money, backload the contract, I would understand that as well. That's Yeah, that's what I was going to say, is that if you're talking about getting creative, I mean, they're going to have to backload, you know, a couple of these deals if they do want to improve and keep it, you know, keep it somewhat respectable on the cap. It. What I'm saying is, I guess what I would agree with you on is that I think with bullpen versus starting rotation, you kind of need to pick your poison. Look, like the Dodgers, a team that won a franchise record, getting, you know, amount of games had a terrible bullpen. The Nationals, who won the World Series, had a terrible bullpen. You can, I think, starting pitching, you know, a, a bad bullpen, as we've seen last year, is somehow going to find a way to always undo you, and that's how it seems. But I think if other things had gone right for the Mets, it wouldn't have even been left to that. Um, so I think you have to value a starting rotation over a bullpen. And that's not to say that you don't you know, dedicate any of your resources or your money to the bullpen. But, yeah, like you said, I mean, you just don't know with a lot of these guys. I mean, they're going to be overpaid because people think – you can't build a good bullpen otherwise nowadays. So it's like, yeah, you're going to have to – baseball's reaching that stage where it's going to have to be – you know, you're going to have to – like the fall league guys, you're going to have to develop guys. But the hard part about developing guys is that you're all – you know, there's most of them are starters. You don't have a lot of dedicated relievers, so you don't know what you have, you know, until some of these guys' starting pitching careers fizzle out. And so, like, yeah, you're going to need to get lucky in some aspects. But I – yeah, it's hard to say because I do know a lot of people dedicate that argument. You know, you could, should dedicate the money to to the bullpen, but 
who would you use it? I, you know, I mean, it's you could put a pins, you know, across the bulletin board. I wouldn't. I know mean, I'll throw names like Deakman and Hudson to you. I mean, those are names that have come out. I mean, those are nice names. I don't like the walks on Deakman, but uh, is Hudson going to be good? Uh, I don't know. You know, Familia could be great again. I mean, I have concerns about his health. Edwin Diaz, uh, you know, I have more faith that there's more of an upside there. But um, this is hard. I mean, they, I think there's a misconception that everyone's figured it out. I guess Tampa has maybe come closest. Um, and I wonder what their secret sauce is. Maybe it goes back to the pitching coach and using analytics and, and, and maximizing the repertoire. See, I think a lot of people think analytics is just numbers. No, it's looking at pitchers. And I, and, and I, and I don't know if you've read it yet. I've been reading the MVP machine by Ben Lindbergh and Travis Sawcheck. It's very interesting oh. where this is going. And I think the Mets are going to try to incorporate some of this stuff. Um, but even with all that, you know, you read even these kind of books for every success, there's going to be one or two failures. It's, it's a really tough spot. That's why you, you almost have to invest in the starter. And I don't want to even go like the Strasburg, Ryu, uh, Cole route, because I think that's unrealistic. The Mets already have uh, DeGrom's contract. I think it's unfair asking them to take two risky high-end starting pitcher contracts. And I know the fans hate hearing that, but from a business perspective, I, I don't care, New York or not, I don't know if that's a sound business decision with that level of contract you're talking about, the ground level of contract. Yeah, like, and even then, like, I get it. People say, yeah, New York team should always be in on, you know, but but it's like, let, let's be realistic, you know, for just the, the Sega conversation. Yeah, they they won't, and it's like, de- yeah, dedicate those resources elsewhere. And it's, um, yeah, I, I don't think, it's hard. I mean, look at what Mark Melanson, you know, the kind of the, ups and downs he's taken over the past couple seasons. Look at, you know, Sean Doolittle this season at points. Like, you have these guys who were always, you know, really solid guys, and even they're struggling. So it it would be tough. It, then this isn't to say you just don't go for it with the bullpen, but it would be tough to spend a lot of money there and have it not work out because then there'd be a lot of second guessing as to why they didn't use it, you know, on the starting rotation and it's like it's like you said. I mean, you you just don't know with these guys. I mean, it's um, you can't, you know. There's an unpredictability and a fickleness to it that that makes it difficult for you to know what you're getting out of one of these bullpen guys. But yeah, I do think it would be risky to take on a Cole or a Strasburg. Plus, I just don't think the Mets, you know, could pay them. And I think else they'll go elsewhere um, where they'll shine a lot more and will they get paid more. I think one of the more realistic scenarios, if they don't, I'm curious, if you were GM, say like Justin Toscano was the GM of the Mets, uh, I'm looking at the names out here and I'm saying to myself, all right, you know, Wheeler leaves. I have a, I have a lot. I'm bullish on, on Lugo. I know about the, the arm injury, the, the, the nerve, uh, the UCL, but you can manage that better as a starter. And as great as he was as a, as a reliever, the durability and the inactivity at certain, certain days is a killer. Uh, I go uh, Lugo. I put maybe a competition with the guys like this uh, Gonzalez that they just brought in. You know, maybe you bring in a veteran like Derek Holland or Gio Gonzalez or Drew Smiley if they can't get a deal. And that's going to be that's how the market goes. We don't know who's going to be on a on a veteran minor league deal with major league invite. I know they did a little bit of that this past year. The Mets. Um, I think that's the way I would probably go in a realistic way to go. 
if Wheeler doesn't sign, what is if you were the GM, would you go that way or would you go a different way? Would you go a, a Rick Porcello way, you know, one year deal veteran, a local guy, or Tanner Roark, who I think is interesting, or or maybe you have an idea that I'm not thinking about right now. I probably, I think I probably start with a Roark or a you know or a Porcello because like I, I just don't like I know Lugo wants to start, so hey for him like maybe I give him that opportunity. We'll bring in one of those guys in. And I think he stayed a little bit of competition to see how far, you know, to see how well Lugo can stretch, get stretched out. And then, you know, how well he starts. And yeah, because you're easy, you're right. It's easy to manage that. If you know, like, Hey, we're going to keep him at four or five innings today. Then, you know, going into that day, okay, our bullpen's, you know, got to be rested. Like, so you manage to that. But, um, man, it would be hard to lose him in the bullpen especially if he wasn't – if he never made a full 100% successful transition to starting again. So I think I would bring in a Roark-type guy to um, to accent that. So at least there's a little bit of a competition there. And if Lugo doesn't fit the bill as well as this other guy that you paid to do so, I think you send him back to the bullpen because – Look, I mean, I, I think a lot of the thing people aren't thinking about is how good Lugo's going to be expected by the fan base and, you know, by the Mets to be pretty good in a starting role, good enough that'll justify not having their best reliever from a year ago. And I think that's a big thing people might not be talking about is like, so if you take a guy like this out of the bullpen, their best reliever out of the bullpen, and I'm not saying most talented because we all know, you know, Edwin Diaz, his stuff was supposed to be elite and maybe he'll turn around, but their best reliever from a year ago, take him out of the bullpen. I mean, what would you expect starting rotation wise to justify that hole, especially if the Mets can't fill it? You know, I think that's a dangerous game to play. And I'll throw you, you know, the whole creative Mets are not in a position, I believe, to sell the opener with the kind of starters they have. Maybe with Mets, no, uh, not with the other three guys. Do you do a situation where you say, okay, Lugo's not going to pitch four out of five days or four out of six days. He just didn't do it last year down the stretch. Can you say, all right, when he comes in, in five-day period, we could get two three-inning stints. So basically you say, here's the two days in a five-day span where he's available. Now, you know, you probably would want those to coincide with your fifth starter, maybe with Matt's. Uh, certainly even with DeGrom, Syndergaard, Stroman, they're not always going to go seven or eight innings. So what you say is in a five-day period, this day and this day, he's available for three innings. We're going to use him. Now, if you don't need him those days, maybe you you know push him another day out, but he's got two a week. There you go. Then those are the days he's the reliever for two or three innings. You don't have to really necessarily worry about, you know, depending on how many, you know, how, what the score is or whatnot, Familia and Diaz. He's your guy for three innings. It's a little bit different than an opener, but it's the backwards way, and maybe it's the only way as a bullpen arm that you can save him if this is as big of a deal, which Mickey Calloway, for whatever you you know like or dislike about him as a manager, he knows pitching, he said it publicly. He did not think Lugo could be a reliever without being managed. He thought he could be a starter and a reliever, but he had to be managed, and I, and I have to think he knows a little bit there. Yeah, yeah, look, and I, yeah, I know there are a lot of, First opinions to uh to Mickey, but the guy, I mean, these guys have those jobs for a reason, you know. And so, if a guy saying that it does hold at least some weight, I think that's an interesting idea you brought up. Though, I mean, 
it would, for me, it's like there were times, I guess, you know, my immediate thought was there were times when Lugo just needed to come in and and shut things down or or stop the bleeding or really, I mean, save the game technically, Um, you know, even before the ninth inning. And uh, so I'm wondering, you know, if that could still be in play because what if they'd already used him for one of the – so they'd have to be careful with it. But I guess if you're thinking about, you know, two times out of a week, you get the most out of him because he's not going to pitch back-to-back days. Or, you know, maybe you might start like he did last year, pitch back-to-back days. But I think, yeah, that, you know, and that also might keep him happy, like, hey, you're going to get this type of workload. But I do think the Mets still need a guy who, you know, Lugo was last year that'll come in for an inning and just blow it out completely. Just, you know, come in for one or two innings and blow it out. And I think – you know, he could do that. My issue is, like, I keep coming back to how they fill out the rest of the bullpen. I mean, it's going to be – I don't think it'll define their season next year because I think enough – maybe enough else will be different. But, it's yeah, it's going to be tough. But I do definitely – I would err on that idea more so than, yeah, like you said, the opener I don't think is realistic. Plus, I think him starting – I mean, I think he's a fine pitcher, but I think his value now is more in the bullpen than in the starting rotation. So this at least maximizes, you know, your opportunity to to use him. Maybe you pick two or three days and then spread him out over those or, you know, in a week or, um, you know, two or three out of, out of seven or, yeah, out of five, like you said. I mean, maybe he he gives you those and maybe he gets stretched out enough to, to do so. I think it's really going to depend on come spring training. I really think they'll – have him working, you know, as a starter, trying to get stretched out to do so, because I think it's going to be something where you like, you need to see what you have, you know? Uh, absolutely. Just as a scan of the record joining me, we're trying to figure out this off season. It's not easy. There's a lot of things and it's not as black and white, or as we said earlier, linear as, as many think, and just spending off season, just talking about, well, the Mets should be spending. Uh, it's that's not the answer. And, and I'll tie that into the defense and, Brody Van Wagenen talked about the bullpen. We know about Zach Wheeler. We know about the starting rotation. But improving this team defensively is not easy. Now, easy way to do it is you trade Ramos, you sign Grandel, but there's some years and some age with Grandel. And I think Grandel's a better uh, catcher than Ramos, but Ramos provided some big hits. Um, there, there was something there that, that you know, uh, intangible that I felt as the year went on outside of Syndergaard and that situation that he had brought. And he's a short-term deal. And if you want anything uh, in terms of going after Real Muto and, and who knows what's going to happen there in Philly, you want to give yourself some flexibility. Grendel would take that away with a long-term deal into his 30s. Now, here's the other thing, Justin. I hear, well, the Mets want a center fielder. You hear them throw names out there, Byron Buxton, Harrison Bader, who they tried to get. Um, you know, Kevin Kiermeyer, uh, guys like, uh, McNeil, JD Davis, uh, Lowry at some point, Brandon Nimmo, who I think gets forgotten about over the last two years. Again, if you want to break down their offensive production on many layers, those were guys that at times were top 25 offensive players in baseball and, and it comfortable yeah. kind of falls into there depending on when you look at them. Now, maybe they're not consistent and maybe you can't expect that. But I'm not exaggerating. Nimmo in 2018, you look at it, he was, a, from a, a value equation, he was a top 25 offensive uh, player. And I know their defense is lacking. But the Mets offense in the second half, and you were there to watch it, was pretty good. And I know the debate is all the different teams, the bad teams, but they averaged over five runs a game. And, and I think offense is the least 
likely thing they need to work on. Can they, you know, rob Peter to pay Paul? Or I'm thinking, is it possible to bring in a better backup version of Lagaris and Kean Broxton and the guys that failed to be like the late inning defensive replacement so that they could still have their cake and eat it too. They could still get these guys mix and match the elite offense. And, and when they need defense, they can go to it, especially in center field. Cause I'd hate to trade Nimmo or JD Davis uh, for a Byron Buxton. It's not bad, but I almost feel like you're giving away elite offensive talent to fill a need that uh, when it balances out, you're hurting way too much of the offense at that point. What are your thoughts? Yeah, that that was what side I aired on when I originally went through this offseason. So you could trade, yeah, Nimmo or a J.D. Davis. Or, I mean, I guess you could maybe even deal Conforto if you wanted to because he's going to make, you know, enough in arbitration where it could save you some. But, yeah, it's like I, you know, I don't – I would be wary of sacrificing offensive production for – for defense. Now you need defensive ability, especially in center field. That's an important thing. But yeah, I did wonder like, could they get a better Ligaris or, you know, because he was, you're not even talking about like a lack of offensive production with him. He, he did nothing other than a week and a half of the season. And so that really hurt the Mets. I mean, you're talking about a guy, you know, who's a defensive replacement, but every time he comes up in the order it was not a threat. And it was that way for the entire season. He had a terrible year. Um, so, yeah, I was wondering, I think you could probably get a better backup than him if you really wanted that defensive replacement. Um, that's the big key with center field. I honestly don't know how you fix the, the catcher situation because I know that Ramos does not, you know, is the light does not shine very well on him with some of the, the numbers and the analytics but um, and the metrics, but, like, defensively, but, I mean, that's a guy who put together, after all was said and done, I mean, he had a big slump, you know, in the first part there, but he put together a really good offensive season. And, you know, I know that's not what a catcher is, is, is for traditionally, but you might look at what you lose. Now, Grandal is not bad, you know, at the plate. But Ramos, I mean, I think he took the brunt of um, of a lot of issues others were having. I think he was – he was a scapegoat for a lot of those, which, you know, is not fair for him. But, yeah, you know, it's like you keep coming back to those two and you look at center field and I just like, heck, I mean, people already thought it was a problem that J.D. Davis was platooning or that, you know, they were going to need to figure this out. So he, Nemo, Conforto, and McNeil could all be in the same lineup. But it's like, well, if you bring in a new starting center fielder, I mean, that's that's not going to happen, you know. It's there, there's just no way to keep keep them all in there. Yeah, and I'll tell so you what, people don't offense. realize they don't realize how good JD Davis was, especially after July 1st. To do some sorts on Baseball Reference on Fangraphs, and I watched them with my eyes. You were there in the clubhouse. The guy comes from a great culture in Houston. He's a worker. Uh, there was a podcast late in the year with Gelbs and Randazza where he talked about his off-season routine. He's a very impressive guy. I'm sure you've had a chance. To, I know you have had a chance to talk to him. You you wrote some pieces about him. Uh, and you know what? You might, you know, one of the biggest sell jobs for Beltron might be to Cano. Hey, look, you're going to be best four days a week. So you're going to need McNeil at second. You're, J.D. Davis talks about being, you know, his goal to be a gold glove third baseman. Look, I, I don't know if he can do it. But when guys focus and have the work ethic that a JD has, I wouldn't bet against them. It wouldn't be bad to have, and someone's going to be unhappy. Someone's going to get 
probably 200 or 150 less plate appearances than they want. Uh, and that might be Jed Lowry, but too bad. I mean, that's part of being on a good team. And if they don't want that, you know, maybe they should speak now because they could get traded. Um, you know, I, I would be real careful giving away. And even Brandon Nimmo, I don't think people realize how good he could be if healthy. I'm concerned about the neck, but it seemed like he proved that he was healthy in the last uh, month. And again, if you have options, these guys are not going to have to play 160 games. They're going to be able to be sit, sit down. And I think they have a really good problem here. And just to bring in a defensive center fielder, uh, to trade a McNeil, you know, for a Kevin Kiermaier, I just, I just, to me, I, I think you're overvaluing defense at that point and metrics at that point and not looking what your eyes see, what offense they created in the second half, especially if they lose Wheeler and need to uh, bang out some more hits on those days when a fifth starter plays. Yeah, you'd have to almost go, you know, the free agency route there with the center field. Because I, man, I don't see trading. I think you leave this core, and I think – to your first point, J.D. Davis is a part of that in terms of I was surprised more people weren't clamoring that, you know, more fans weren't clamoring for him to have a full-time role because if you look at what this guy did offensively, people talk about, well, he's not a natural left fielder. It took him some time to adjust. Well, his glove was very, you know, very adequate for the numbers he put up and for not offensively and for not being a true left fielder. So I do think he could play third base yeah but then you have you know the McNeil's Lowry and then you're going to be dealing with you and if you have a center fielder then those guys the outfielders time gets scrunched and and then you know you even have you know a, a Dom Smith and it's like what do you do with him and it's just like it it's a good problem to have but in the end you have to really really play it right or people aren't going to be happy and you're going to ruin kind of the flow of this this core that really is a surprise because look it's a surprise to have now look and have a core of Pete Alonso, JD Davis, Jeff McNeil, like guys like that to go along with Conforto and Nimmo, guys you were probably already high on and you'd, I don't think you want to ruin that. I mean it's de- defense is important but then the name of the game this like in this day and age is scoring runs and starting pitching, starting pitching probably before that you need great starting pitching. Look, the Mets can achieve that. They're already, you know, 90% of the way there to that. If they figure, you know, once they figure out the Wheeler situation or how to replace him, you need to score. I mean, you need a good lineup and I think it would be unwise to, to overvalue defense at, you know, at the expense of maybe dealing one of, the guys in your core that you're, you're relatively high on. Now, I don't think they would look to deal a Jeff McNeil or somebody like that, but I mean, you know, JD Davis is a candidate. I mean, he's a guy who's going to have some value, but I don't think, I think it would be unwise to even move him. So the GM meetings are coming up. We know the winter meetings out on the West coast is, you know, less than a month away. It's, it's, you know, this, the off season is here. This seems like the world series ended yesterday, but the off season is here. What could we expect from you? What are some of the things you're looking for? Any stories you want to tease? Uh, you know, we, uh, we want to get a feel of what to expect that adjusted to Scano and obviously the record over the next few weeks. Yeah, I'll be at the winter meetings, but this week is going to be a lot of the, um, the award stuff. I do have a couple things in the works that I see that I can't really tease to that I, you know, have to see if um, kind of come to fruition, but yeah, just covering the off season. I mean, I, it's nice to get like a break, but um, I mean, it's fascinating. It's like how 
Brody Van Wagner, look, I mean, the guy gets paid a lot of money, but he's going to earn, you know, he's going to earn it this off season. It's going to be um, interesting to see what he means by, you know, being creative and how he's going to attempt to do that. But yeah, I mean, just stay tuned to our coverage. We'll have stuff. I've got to, you know, hopefully stuff kind of um, marinates. I don't know if this is the right word, but works out. But yeah, like I'll be at the winter meetings and, um, uh, then, you know, got spring trainings only a couple months after that. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's going to be an interesting time. I mean, it was it was good to talk to you because I do think um, yeah, it's a fascinating offseason. I really, you know, I really don't want his job because I don't know. I don't I don't know what you do. I mean, the easiest thing is to add payroll, obviously. But um, with ownership probably not being willing to do that, I, I don't know how you improve a team that already seems like it's really good but needs a couple more steps to, to reach kind of the postseason and then get a shot at reaching its ultimate goal, right? Yep, and you came in on May, and you could not have picked a more wacky season to get involved with this beat, I got to tell you. It was one of the more, and, I, you know, look, I haven't covered the team like you, but watching this team doing this thing for years, I got to tell you, it was one of the more unique seasons. Uh, and it's your first year on the beat, so who knows what's going to come next year. And uh, we always appreciate you coming on and uh, looking forward to talking to you again as the off season and the season comes, Justin. I do, I do thank you for your time here on a Sunday. Of course, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course, man. Uh, thanks for having me and stay well. That's Justin Toscano, at Justin C. Toscano on Twitter, the record. Let's take a quick break, wrap up, final thoughts. We got uh, a long segment there. Went longer. It was a good conversation there. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. We do more than just the big league team here on the Talking Mets podcast, like when Brooklyn Cyclones play-by-play announcer Keith Rad stopped by and talked to us about 2019 third-round pick Matthew Allen. A lot of people said he kind of looks like a young Matt Harvey, which on the stuff side is, is amazing. He's got kind of that, that young Harvey-looking face, and he comes in the other night, like you said, and he throws, he's supposed to throw two innings, you know, high school guy, keep him, keep him on a limit. He throws two perfect innings, okay, Allen's done, and then they send him out there for another inning, and everyone was like, kind of gasping. Oh my goodness, this is uh, this is the future. They're going to go let him go out for another inning. You know, this is somewhat unheard of at this level. And he goes out and shoves for another inning, and um, you know he's throwing 96, and he's got a he's got a hammer at 80, and these guys can't touch it. Like I couldn't imagine. You know, he's just you know shoving in high school, and he's you know, shoving now in the pros. Um, he he's got a really great makeup. Listen to this and more at www.talkimentspodcast. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. That was a great segment by uh, Justin Toscano, and I think we went over 30 minutes. Very rare that I go that long, and you could almost do a podcast just of that segment, but the conversation was good, and uh, we had a lot to go over, and I agree. I think in, in summary here, when you really think about what we've talked about, uh, this is a complicated offseason, and it does start with Zach Wheeler and what they do with Zach Wheeler. And it, it it does not necessarily have, as Justin said, a linear uh, answer. It, it could go many different ways. And, and I think the challenging part and why it's so difficult for Brody Van Wagenen is that you have a good team here. And to improve it, you may have to pull away from the good team and make some painful decisions, whether it be trading a Dom Smith or a J.D. Davis or Brandon Nimmo or, or letting Wheeler walk and, and trying to use those funds on the bullpen and maybe go with a little bit more of a, a question mark in the fifth spot of the rotation. 
uh, there's different ways to go. And um, we didn't really even get deep into the catching situation, which is a whole other debate with Yasmani Grandel and Wilson Ramos and obviously some of the names that have come up early for the bullpen. Uh, but I think we covered things pretty thoroughly and hopefully you enjoyed it. And there's going to be more to come. And we'll see this week with the GM meetings what kind of news comes out. Uh, we'll definitely be having a podcast next week. I had my idea about maybe a fun segment we can do if the news warrants it. If it's a slow news week, we can do that. If not, uh, we'll continue to try to go out there and uh, and evaluate some of the information coming out there as uh, the Mets is the hot stove, like I said, nice chilly weekend here in New York. Hot stove has started. Pull up a chair, get in front of the fire, uh, you know, whatever you may be doing, and uh, listen to the Talking Mets podcast each week throughout the off season. Uh, I wanted before I wrap up here, I want to give a shout out to two new listeners of the show who sent me very nice emails this week. Uh, Mark Friedman, uh, and I want to say thank you, Mark, for being a new listener and enjoying the podcast and letting me know how uh, you've tuned in for the first time, and you turned your son into a Mets fan from the beginning, so you're a smart guy there, uh, Mark. And then uh, from Down Under, Tom Hartlett, and uh, he's from Down Under, I believe um, Australia. Uh, you know, he's coming over to the United States, and uh, he's going to be seeing some family, and he wants to make a trip to New York, and, um, you know, we'll see what uh, where that goes, so... Uh, congratulations on uh, coming on over and coming to see a Subway Series game. And I appreciate you tuning in to the show, and, and thank you again for reaching out. And if you want to reach out to me and make a comment, have a question, interact, uh, it sometimes it takes me a little bit to get back to you, but I will. It's Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike, M-I-K-E, Silva, S-I-L-V-A, at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, want to... Throw that out there as well. Of course, you could subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and Spotify and all the different places you can get a podcast. Pretty much you can find me somewhere. And working on some some new things as the offseason goes on, so stay tuned for that. Want to thank our guest, Justin Toscano. Check him out on Twitter, at Justin C. Toscano. Of course, you could check me out all the time on Twitter, at Mike Silva Media. You can get the show all the time at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Apple Podcast is the way to go. You can leave me a review and some comments. I'd greatly appreciate it. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Enjoy your Sunday. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week. Be well, everybody. <laughs>